Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Grace. Let me begin by asking you a question. I'm curious how you would answer this. Where is Jesus Christ right now? Now, if you grew up in the church, as so uh, many people in our country have in some form or another of some religious expression, if you're particularly uh, in some of the more prominent mainline expressions of Christianity, you might have grown up citing the Apostles' Creed. And in that, you said that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, that is true. And so our minds immediately go there. That's a biblical teaching. Jesus himself said that he was preparing a place for those who are in him. So it's right to think of the Lord as in heaven. But I want you to also know that the passage we look at today makes an astonishing claim that Jesus is also in the true believer. That is one of the great promises of Scripture, that when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that he actually comes and makes his dwelling in us. He's not just residing in some far-off place. He comes to empower us and to strengthen us for daily living. No other religious leader makes such a claim. And I think you could reduce this mysterious teaching to seven words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In fact, in today's passage, if you have your Bible open there, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, says that very thing. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, here it is now, seven words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the word glory, if you study its background, the etymology of it, how it's used in Scripture, you'll see that it's a very multifaceted word. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it just means a weightiness where the glory of God filled the temple and people could hardly move because of, it was this weightiness about the glory of God. And sometimes it says people's faces shone with the glory of God. Well, what in the world does that mean? So there's all these different facets about the glory. Sometimes in evangelical culture, in popular culture today, we say, we kind of associate glory with heaven. We say, oh, he's already gone on to glory, and it glory becomes another word for heaven. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word. Now, don't get me wrong, heaven will be glorious, but we need to understand the primary meaning of the glory of God, it means God's moral character. God's moral character. And here's God's goal for you and me. He wants his glory, his moral character to be seen in us, his church. Scripture is crystal clear on that. Paul hammers that message over and over again in the epistles, in the letters that he wrote. God wants his glory to be seen in us. Yikes. 
That's a problem. Because my sin and your sin has a way of dimming the glory of God in us. It does. But as we faithfully live for Christ, as he gradually sanctifies us over time on our journey with him, trust me, his goal is that his character would literally be seen in us and expressed through us so that we, as I often tell you, will represent him well to the world. That is our main job, folks, while we're on this planet, to give people the right impression of who God is. And so it becomes vitally important that Christ in us, the hope of glory, actually shines through us. So I want to explore with you today four ways that Christ brings that glory, his moral character, in and through us. The first one I would suggest is that he brings his glory through suffering. Now, this is not the happiest news you've had this morning, I'm sure, but it's just a biblical truth we need to embrace. He brings his glory through suffering. I'm looking now at verse 24 of chapter 1. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up, Paul says, what is still lacking. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. Now, Paul is not teaching there that somehow what Jesus suffered on the cross was not enough, so I need to add to it. Are you hearing that? He is not teaching that somehow the substitutionary atonement of Jesus just fell short a little bit, so I, Paul, the apostle, need to add to what Jesus did. He is not saying that. What he is saying, I think, is that when Christians suffer, there's this amazing, mysterious, close identification between Christ and his church whenever we suffer. We revel in the promises the Lord gave us, don't we? I mean, as followers, we love them. I love all those great promises, you know, that I mentioned one of them earlier, that he's preparing a place for us. Oh, we love those promises. But one of the promises we don't revel in too much is when Jesus promised us, promised us, that in this world, we would have trouble. I don't like that promise. I'll just hang on to the positive ones, the ones that make me feel good. But he promised that we would suffer. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? In a Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's how you should respond when that happens. He said, look, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So think about this right now. What is your great, greatest source of suffering right now? You, you're thinking of it, aren't you? A marriage that's not going real well, a child that's breaking your heart, financial picture that's causing anxiety, a neighbor that's driving you bonkers, a health issue. What, what, what is it? What's causing suffering in your life right now, relationally or otherwise? Listen, 
in that situation, if that circumstance in your life that's causing you to fight daily just to have a decent attitude, if it has anything to do with you as a Christ follower, you can rejoice and be glad in that because according to Jesus, your reward in heaven is great. We need this. We need this in our souls, Christian, because Christians, because life does bring some troubling things. If any of it has to do with the fact that we're a Christ follower, Jesus said, it's time to start dancing a little bit. Get happy, rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven when you suffer for me. So Paul here is kind of rejoicing. He literally said that. I rejoice in these sufferings for the sake of Christ and his church. He goes on in verse 25 here. I have become its servant. That is the servant of the body of Christ, the servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul's commission was to preach the gospel of God's grace, and he suffered for that. I, I just, I love that section that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he just goes on a rip a rip listing some of the things that he suffered. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. <sighs> That's a lot of stuff. And then he adds, besides everything else, on top of all that, like the cherry on the top of this Sunday of suffering, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And by the way, I think that was one of his greatest pressures of all. And the only way he could endure all of that to advance the gospel because of the power of Christ within him was giving him the strength to do it. Brothers and sisters, are you listening? You're going to face some hard things, but because of the power of Christ within you, you are going to have more strength than you thought you had. Corey Tin Boom was a great Christian woman. I knew one of her uh, personal assistants who spent many years assisting Corey Tin Boom toward the latter years of her life. Her name was Pamela Roswell. We worked together at a, a Billy Graham Center in Dallas for a number of years. And Corey Tin Boom tells this story about when she would go to the train station in Harlem in the Netherlands with her father. Her father would not give her the train ticket until they got right there, and then he would hand her the ticket. As a little girl, he thought she might lose it or misplace it. And the thing about our heavenly father is that he gives us what we need when we need it. And often he does not give the full measure of his power until the precise moment when he needs, we need it, but he always delivers. 
I've heard this over and over again from dear Christian people. I've heard people say, Pastor, I just, I just didn't think I'd be able to go through a painful divorce. Pastor, I, I, I've seen other people lose a child, but I, I didn't think that's something I could ever endure. I thought, God, anything but that I could endure, but not that. I've heard people say, you know, I, to me, the most precious thing is my health, and I, I just... I just never thought I could go through the kind of situation I'm going through right now. But over and over again, I've heard people say, but God gave me the strength. But God gave me the strength, not just to endure it, but to actually thrive through it. And as you've gone through things in life and you've seen Christ in you, the hope of glory, empowering you to get through that, it gives you more confidence for things that might come in the future. And you're not afraid as much of the future because you can say through with David, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he brings that moral character to bear through suffering. But secondly, I would suggest to you that he brings glory through our service and witness for Christ. This is another significant biblical theme. He goes on here in verse 28, where he says, we proclaim him, that is Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Paul's goal was not just to get people saved, but was to present them fully mature. He uses the word perfect here. It means to complete maturity. Don't think it means sinlessly perfect, but it means having fulfilled all of the fullness, all fully actualized in their life, what God's plan is for them. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Now, when the Apostle Paul was converted, he was on his way to Damascus to actually persecute Christians. And as you know, if you've read the story in the book of Acts, and he told it a number of times, God struck him down, struck him blind on the road. And you know what his first question was? What shall I do, Lord? That's a good question. By the way, that's the only time I can read in Scripture where someone specifically asked for the will of God to be revealed in a very explicit, overt way. We assume it in a lot of other situations, but that's the only place, Acts 22, verse 10. Just a little Bible trivia there for you. Here's what God said. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. And so what was Paul assigned to do? He was assigned to be a preacher of the gospel. Your job, God said, the only reason I'm not beaming you up to heaven right now, Paul, is I want you to spend the rest of your life testifying to the gospel of God's grace, that people are saved not by jumping through religious hoops or trying to be good enough to earn God's favor or trying to be a nice person. People are saved by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That was Paul's assignment. And when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and those scales of blindness fell from his eyes, Paul found that he had the power to serve and witness for Christ beyond himself. Again, I say, you got that same power in you. It's not just for Paul. It's not just for people in the Bible. It's not just for a few super saints that you've read about hundreds of years ago. Christ is in you this very moment, this very day, and he'll give you the power to serve and to witness beyond what you ever thought you could. Amen. I will, I, I'll never forget the first time I was pushed way, and I mean way out of my comfort zone. Now, I had witnessed for Christ ever since I was saved at the age of 13. But when I was a sophomore in college, I went with a group of nine other fellow college students to New Orleans for a mission trip, a 10-day mission trip. It's the first time I remember being pushed way out of my comfort zone. We ministered on Bourbon Street. We ministered down in the French Quarter. We ministered in surrounding suburban areas, literally working 10, 12 hours a day, sharing Christ, witnessing for Christ. I did a preaching a number of times. I actually sang a few times, if you can believe that. Like solos? I won't even give you a sampling. It was pretty bad. But I actually sang for, uh, for these poor, unsuspecting people that we were trying... <laughs> to minister to. It was amazing. And I've never had the call on the strength of Christ more than I did in those days. But wow, did God grow me. Can I, I'm getting a little personal now, but I just believe that one of the reasons some of you may feel a little stuck in your growth and may actually be a little stuck in your growth is because you've not gotten out of your comfort zone enough. I mean, come on, let's face it, most of our lives, I mean, if they don't require all that much extraordinary power, right? We've got to step out. We've got to kind of start showing up. Our job is to show up. Christ's job is to shine through. And if you show up, he'll shine through because he's in you and he's your hope of glory. So I'm going to actually give you a practical assignment right now for those of you who dare to accept it. I want to invite you right now to show up so he can shine through in a very specific way. We have a wonderful Grace in Action event coming on October 9th. I'm going to be there serving. I'd love to see you as well. And as many of you know, Grace in Action is one of our strategies to engage our community. Hope you know, Christians. It's important you know this. God has not called us to hide from our community and stay inside our four walls and just hunker down until Jesus shows up and gets us out of this crazy world. That is not God's will. God's will is for us to get out into our world and be transforming agents out in the world, representing him well. And so that's what we're going to do again on October the 9th. We need to be doing it every day. Now, why? Why, pastor, would we spend the time and energy? Because God has called us to represent him well in the world. As I said in a recent sermon, I really believe this. Hope you know I don't just say things because they sound pious. I really believe this, that too often our love for God has not translated well into love for people. And I say that of myself, and I think it's just true of us generally. So on October 9th, 
I'm calling you today to this opportunity to love and serve and engage your local community by demonstrating God's love through practical acts of service. Now, some of us are aching to do stuff like this because, as you know, over the last year and a half, COVID-19 has made this very difficult. And so we have nine of our Grace in Action partners involved in that day. There's going to be 10 different locations to serve at, 100 different serv- 160 excuse me, different serving opportunities all across the Capital District. By the way, it covers all four of the counties of the Capital District, so it's really spread out. What a marvelous day. It's a Saturday morning, and it's rain or shine. You hear that? Rain or shine. But like I said, if you show up, he's gonna shine through you. Why? Because he's your hope of glory. You say, well, pastor, how do I sign up? I did it yesterday. I just went to the website. It's actually on the Planning Center Online part, a homepage, I think. But what I did, because I'm not a computer savant, I I just put in a search. I just hit that little search key there and I, uh, icon, and I just said grace in action event, and boom, it popped right up. Even I navigated it. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And I just found, I looked at all the different serving opportunities. It explains what kinds of work is needed, and so I just picked the one that I thought fit me the best. It tells you exactly where you need to show up, when you need to show up, but if you don't show up, he's not going to shine through. And so we're going to show up at about 8.30. I urge you to do this quickly. It's a first-come, first-serve basis. Don't dally around. Sign up as soon as you can. It's family-friendly. You say, I've got kids. Bring them. It's family-friendly. You can bring the kids. Families can serve together if you'd like to. And after you've looked at where you'd like to sign up, where you'd like to serve, October 9, just show up about 8.30 that Saturday morning. Bring your work clothes and shoes because they might get a little dirty. In fact, I'm praying they will. I'm praying a prayer for you that you'll get your clothes stained a little bit, get your hands a little dirty, get a spot or two on your clothing for Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Just show up at 8.30. There'll be a brief orientation. And by 9 o'clock, The service projects will begin, and just two and a half hours later, by about 11.30, it'll be time to clean up and debrief a little bit about how the morning went. It's going to be amazing, and I want the people of grace to show up strong so Christ can shine through powerfully. This is going to be a day we'll never forget. Go on the website. Registration is open now. God brings his glory and builds his character into us as we serve and witness for him. It happened to the apostle. It'll happen for you. Third, he brings glory as we champion truth and reject lies. Ooh, this gets good. This gets good. He brings his moral character into us, builds it into us as we reject lies and as we champion truth. I'm looking now at chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love 
so that they will have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says in verse four, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. The Apostle Paul faced all kinds of deceptive, fine-sounding arguments coming through the false teachings in the first century. There were Gnostics who taught that all matter is evil and therefore Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh or else he would be evil, so he must have just been a phantom. That was one of the false teachings, one of the first ones that they faced as a church. And then there were other false teachings. There were the Judaizers who taught that the Old Testament law still had to be followed in detail if you wanted to be a real Christian. So Paul and Peter and John and all the other apostles had to confront these fine-sounding arguments so that people would not be led astray. Now, brothers and sisters, there are all kinds of fine-sounding arguments and false ideas that are deceiving people today. Please be aware. They're everywhere. Please be aware that anytime, anytime you go online, anytime you listen to a typical podcast, anytime you read an article from secular media, anytime you turn on a typical TV show, anytime you listen to a popular movie, anytime you kind of, uh, you know, spend hours on Netflix, you are probably, probably being bombarded with some fine-sounding arguments, whether you realize it or not. You are. Trust me, you are. Things that are absolutely false, but boy, they sound pretty fine. Among the most popular today are, hey, God is God of love, not justice. Uh, No, he's just love. Love's going to trump everything eventually. And so everyone will ultimately be saved. That's a fine-sounding argument. Oh, here's one. Christ is one way to God, but you know, there are really many ways. We've got to be open-minded. We just got to acknowledge that. There's nothing really that unusual, certainly nothing unique about Jesus Christ. Fine-sounding argument. Or here's one, the Bible is a cool source of wisdom. It really is. There's a lot of amazing things said there, but we should be open to other sources that are not only equal, but really honestly superior to the Bible because after all, I mean, that was written 2,000 and more years ago. Surely we found better ways to God since then. Those are all fine-sounding arguments that lead millions of people to destruction. So I just want to declare today to a group of people who live in the same world I live in, a world that is lost in a sea of relativism, there still is such a thing as capital T truth. Not all truth is relative. Many things are relative. Many things are. And there are so many things we need to keep learning, absolutely. 
But there is still such a thing as capital T truth. My question is, can you discern truth from falsehood when you hear it? You have friends who think you're nuts. You have friends, trust me, who think you're crazy to build your life on principles coming from a 2,000-year-old book. How can you be so gullible, they say. But those of us who have Christ in us have a true north star and a basis for determining what is pleasing to God and what is out of bounds. He begins to give us that capacity to discern truth and error, right from wrong, as we live in this zone uh, with him, as we learn to listen to his voice through the word of God. And that brings me to the final point of the day. He brings his glory as we stand firm in spite of how we feel. And I, I would get this from verse five, verse five of chapter two. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let me ask you, how firm is your faith in Christ? It'll be challenged by suffering and doubt and temptation and disappointment, but one of the primary challenges to your faithfulness to Christ is the daily grind. I believe that with all my heart. The primary challenge is not the crisis. I think it's the routine because it is so easy for us to get discouraged in the routine things of life. I hear some longtime Christians say, oh, pastor, I used to be so stoked up, so excited about my walk with Christ, but now sometimes I just feel like I'm going through the motions What's wrong with me? I just, I, just don't, I just don't have those ecstatic feelings that I used to have. I empathize because we love it when we have those ecstatic experiences with God. But I want to say to that dear brother or sister, listen, where did you get the idea? Just lovingly, just kindly say this. Where, really, where'd you get the idea that the Christian life was designed to be one continuous emotional high. Where, where did that honestly come from? Hey, you married folks, all that, all the married folks. Let me ask you, is marriage one continual emotional high? <laughs> if one of you jokers wants to raise your hand and go, yes, it is in my marriage, you're smoking something, dude. You're smoking something. Marriage is not one big honeymoon. Marriage isn't all about feelings. It's about faithfulness, and the Christian life is much the same. There will be times when you really feel great, ecstatic, literally goosebumps. It's like a miracle a day before breakfast. Hallelujah. You'll have a few seasons like that where you think like, wow, God is just all over me. I'm telling you, I just feel electric. I've had those seasons. But that's not the norm. 
for the most part, the Christian life has to be lived out in a daily routine, day in, day out, year in, year out. It goes on and on. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And my question is, can your faith remain firm and strong even through the drudgery of everyday life? I heard about a preacher who was celebrating his 50th wedding anniversary with his wife. They were all excited, 50 years together, awesome milestone. And he said, hey, what would you like for your anniversary? And she said, well, I'd just like to be six again. And so he surprised her. Anniversary day came, he took her to Disney World. They rode all the rides in the Magic Kingdom, amazing. Hadn't done that in years, decades. They went to McDonald's and got a hamburger, fries, and a Coke. Then they went to an ice cream shop, got a big old ice cream, came home, both fell exhausted into bed. He said, how'd you like your anniversary? She said, well, I'm pretty tired from all that walking and kind of feeling nauseous from all those rides and my stomach's a little queasy from all that food. He said, I thought you wanted to be six again. She said, a size six again. You cannot go back and recapture the thrill of childhood. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and you cannot go back and recapture the emotional experience of your spiritual childhood either. The test, the test of your Christian faith is not what you do on the mountaintop. It's will your faith remain firm? That's what Paul said he wanted to see from the Colossians, how firm. Firm your faith in Christ is in the routine. You, I, I'm just going to get really real with you here about how I personally evaluate the maturity of a Christ follower. You know, we talk about our whole mission is to make more and better disciples. By better disciples, we're talking about those who are fully mature, which you talked about in verse 28. Present everyone perfect, everyone fully mature in Christ. That is what the church is called to do, more and better. Well, how do we evaluate that? Well, let me tell you how I do it. It's not necessarily by people who are spectacularly gifted. Because I've known many people who have spectacular spiritual gifts that leave you shaking your head going, wow, I wish I could do that. But their life's pretty lousy. So you can't judge it by gifting. I hope we've learned that lesson, okay? And you also can't judge it by someone who talks a good talk. Would you agree with that? Because haven't you known some people who talked a really good walk, but their walk, talked a really good talk, but their walk was pitiful? You can't judge it by how well a person talks. Some people have a good talk, but the walk doesn't match up. Here's the way I evaluate a mature Christ follower, someone who consistently displays the fruit of the Spirit even when life isn't easy. I mean, if you've got a better way, please tell me because I want to know. As far as I know, biblically, that's the way you evaluate if you're really, really with it as a Christian. If you're really moving where God wants you to be, you show the fruit of the Spirit consistently, even when life isn't easy. Let me break that down for you. You go to work every day, give your best effort, even though your work may be tedious and you're really tired of it. 
You know your spiritual gifts and you're using them in at least one kind of ministry because God's called you to serve and to use those gifts for his glory and the good of others. If you're a parent of young children, we have lots of parents. Boy, that's not goosebumps and glory. You love those kids. You give your life for those kids in the moment, but you don't want to change another diaper. But you go ahead and change those diapers. You do that laundry. You pick up those toys. You read those Bible stories, even though you've read them 2,500 times already. You read them at bedtime. You pray with your kids, even though it's not thrilling. You kiss your spouse goodbye. You're kind to your spouse every day, even though your heart doesn't go pitter-patter every time they walk into the room. You get up a little earlier every morning. You read your Bible. You have some spiritual disciplines. You pray, even though it doesn't send chills up your spine. And you worship with God's people on a very regular basis, even though it doesn't always bring tears to your eyes like it used to. That's when I know someone is mature and solid. It's how do they handle the routine not the crisis. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I finish with this. In that old movie, Castaway, starring Tom Hanks, Hanks plays this guy named Chuck who gets marooned on an island, and for four long years, he lives there after his plane has crashed. He made it to this island. And he barely survives, but he learns how to live day after day, almost becoming like an animal. And there's this dull routine every day, and finally he gives way to despair, and he wants to kill himself. But at the last minute, even his suicide attempt is thwarted. But the next day, after he tries to kill himself, the tide kind of washes in this piece of metal. It comes in with the tide, and it uses that metal as a sort of sail for a raft to get him off the island. And he sails off on his little raft with his metal as a sail, and 500 miles away, he's rescued by a ship. But for four years, he's been on that island. He gets back home, and his fiancée, who's kept him alive in memory, but has understandably gone on and married someone else, he is devastated by that. But then he says at the end of the movie, I know what I've got to do. I know what I've got to do. I've got to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will come up and you never know what the tide might bring in. At about that time, a pretty girl walks by. <laughs> Folks, life isn't always scintillating. Sometimes... It's downright dull. And sometimes you just got to keep breathing. You got to keep doing what you know to do. But if Christ is in you, oh, you never lose hope. Because you know tomorrow the sun will come up and you never know what God has in store for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Father, thank you that Christ in us, the hope of glory, is the game changer. Thank you that you're building your moral character in us. You do it through suffering. You do it through our service and witness for you. 
use all these different ways, even the dull daily routine you use to help us grow and be able to discern truth from error and to be good representatives for you. And I pray that for us. We don't want to be just typical, everyday, casual believers. We want to be at our best for you, all you designed us to be, so that we would be presented fully mature in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.